Well, good morning, brothers and sisters and friends. I hope that you all are well. I hope that you've had a, a good week, and it's certainly good to, to see you all. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 3. And before we read, I want to again remind us, as we've, uh, as we've talked about a couple different times, but just remind us again that the theme and purpose of Exodus is that God saves his people for his glory. So the theme of Exodus, all right, this, the overall umbrella over Exodus and what we see God doing is that God saves his people for his glory. And of course, this theme isn't just an Exodus, but it's a theme that runs throughout all of Scripture. Now here, where we are already in Exodus chapter 3, we've seen how God, by his sovereign hand, that he's intricately working out the, the means by which he is going to save his people. Right? We see how, how God is going to draw Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He's raising up a deliverer, a savior, through Moses. And throughout Exodus and throughout the whole Bible, we see how God is gloriously working out all things according to his purposes for his namesake to save his people and to save his people for his glory. And as his people, as the church, we are to give thanks to him. We are to give glory and praise to his holy name because he has saved us. So the purpose and theme of, of Exodus, God saving his people for his, his glory, for his namesake, is to give us a deeper understanding of our own salvation so that we would have a deeper joy, not in this world, but in him. Our text this morning is Exodus chapter 3, and just the verses 11 through 15, but I want to start in our reading at verse 1 and read this as a, as a whole and to help us remember. So let's look at verse 1 as we read. Now Moses was keeping of his flock, of the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not, or do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place that you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was for he was afraid to look at God. 
And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring the people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And then Moses said to God, if I, come to, if I come to the people Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has said to me, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And this is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. Again, this is what we call the, the burning bush passages, which will continue through the middle of chapter 4. And here, Moses, now 80 years old, he is an old man. He's shepherding his sheep in the middle of nowhere. And by this mountain... He is drawn by curiosity, as any one of us would be, particularly us men, to see a fire, of a, a burning of a bush, and this particular bush is not being consumed by the fire. And there in the bush appeared to him the angel of the Lord. And before Moses could turn toward the voice, the voice crawls out to him, and tells them to do not look, but to take your sandals off because the ground that you are now standing on is holy ground. And when Moses hears the voice of God, he is terrified. He is afraid, and he hides his face from the Lord. He is terrified of the holy of that which is utterly separate from him. And the ground is not holy because of the place. The ground is holy because of the presence of the one who has appeared to Moses. The presence of the Most High God is there. 
and he makes this ground holy, and that terrifies Moses. God is totally and utterly above all. He is above all creation, and he is above Moses. He is holy, and he is transcendent from all of creation. And yet in this passage, we see how God mercifully condescended as this, as this, this fire, the angel of the Lord, in a way that, that Moses could understand, that Moses could see, and that Moses would not die from the holiness of God. God has come down to Moses because he has seen the affliction of his people and he is soon going to deliver them out of slavery, out of Egypt and out of slavery and into life. Now right here from the, the very beginning, isn't this reminiscent to us of the gospel? Isn't this reminiscent to us of what Christ has done? That Jesus has condescended, that he took on flesh to die on the cross for our sins and for the sins of his people, to deliver them, to deliver us out of slavery to sin and to bring us into abundant life and eternal life. This is the work of God. This is what he does over and over again throughout his word. He is on the move. And in Exodus, he will certainly save his people for his glory. And he is so committed to doing so that he comes down to his people to raise up a deliverer, to send them into the pit, and to draw out his people out of slavery. And in our passage this morning in verses 11 through 15, we hear Moses' response to God's call on him. Verse 10, God calls Moses to go. He wants to send him to Pharaoh to deliver his people out of Egypt. And in our passage, we see Moses' response. We hear his response, and in his responses, at least in the beginning of his responses, we'll hear some more in a little bit, we hear his inadequacies. He's, cleanly, he's keenly aware of his inadequacies. These are only two questions. He has two questions to God. We're going to hear a couple more questions as we go through chapter 4. And in them, we hear that Moses not only understands his weakness, but we also see Moses' doubt and his reluctance. You know, there's, there's no burning bushes or voices that we are to follow. Our calling is from the Word of God. That is our authority. However, yet when we are confronted with the call of God on our lives and obedience to him, or just everyday obedience, the fight for holiness, we also can be keenly aware of our inadequacies and keenly aware of our weaknesses and failures. We can understand 
the doubts that Moses has. And yet we hear in this passage sufficiently God's response to Moses. And his answers may not be the, the answers that we want to hear or the answers that we would maybe expect God to say, but what we see in these answers is that God is completely sufficient and that he is all that we need. And just like Moses, we are weak, but he is strong. So God tells Moses what he wants him to do. Go to Egypt and go write to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh that the Lord says to let my people go. Now, that is a huge task. I mean, this is like the scene in the Fellowship of the Rings when this fellowship is gathered around and there's the ring sitting in the middle and, and Lord Elrond tells them that this is what we have to do to destroy the ring. We have to go right into Mordor, right through the front door and throw this thing into the fire. And Boromir says, the meme, you see it all over the place. One doesn't just walk into Mordor. And this is what Moses is thinking. One doesn't just go to Pharaoh and say this. And Moses, or God is asking Moses to do something huge. And this isn't the first time God has asked some, something of his people that's this big. Remember Noah? Hey, no, I want you to build this ark in the middle of the desert. Okay. Let my people go. God, that's audacious. In verse 11, we hear Moses' response to God, and I don't think we should be surprised when he says, Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I, he asks. Now Moses isn't struck with amnesia all of a sudden. He's not forgetting who he is. He knows who he is. But he's considering that this monumental task that's being asked of him. And he has huge reservations on what it's going to take to get the job done. Moses knows exactly who he is, and he knows precisely the problem. The problem he knows is him. He understands firsthand who the Egyptians were. He understands the reality of going in there. He understands the reality of being 80 years old and having this task. He also understands that it was 40 years ago that Moses tried to deliver his people. Moses went in, capable and strong, to defend a Hebrew slave, and, to, and he killed this Egyptian, and then he tried to drum up support from other Hebrews to follow him. And what happened? When we get the specifics of the story, he, spe he spectacularly fails. He's rejected by his own people. He's hunted down by his adopted grandfather, the Pharaoh. And he has to run into exile and flee for his life. And for 40 years, 40 years, we, can't, we can hardly fathom that. 40 years, Moses was living in this reality of this epic failure. Now, we certainly can hear some humility in his question of saying, who am I? 
Moses understands that he alone can't do this. He understands his his failures, but also in this question, there is this tinge of false humility. Because he's not asking, I can't do it, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's not saying that. He's saying, who am I? How can I do this? He's saying, you got the wrong man. You got the wrong man. I don't want to go. There's an element of of stubbornness that we can read in this question. We can read that there's this lack of trust in the Lord who has appeared before him in in this burning bush. And the same kind of struggle and the same kind of question that Moses asked is so reminiscent of what we're going to see Israel do. Israel does the same thing. Why should we follow? Why should we go? We are better off in Egypt. Why should we journey and leave Egypt? But the real struggle that is revealed, the question that Moses asks, is the same struggle and question that many of us ask. Because it's the kind of question that we all ask ourselves on some level, who am I? Yet not in humility, maybe in a false humility, maybe in a a stubbornness kind of way or lack of trust, or lack of faith kind of way. Because like Moses, we understand our inadequacies. We understand our weaknesses. We understand our failures. And we have to admit that this question is, although maybe coming from, from stubbornness and a lack of and a false humility, there is, this is an understandable question to ask. It's fundamental to humanity asking this question, who am I? And think about that question. Think about how many people are asking themselves this question. Who am I? Our culture is asking this question. And there are answers being screened out constantly. And one way that this question is being answered is, is in this culture, in this society that has just moved past any kind of Christian understanding or worldview, that we are uniquely created and uniquely created in the image of God. Human dignity and the purpose of humanity was once rooted in a biblical understanding, and I'm speaking very broadly, somewhat, right, somewhat in this understanding, but yet what we have What we are experiencing today and what we have seen is that we've seen that this understanding, this basic Christian understanding, has been replaced with a very secular humanistic worldview that says human fulfillment is in only in the gratification of the self. The gratification of the self, that all virtue is in you. All virtue is the self. So so all pleasure, all self-esteem, all self-worth, those are the highest of morality. That's the highest of all morality. And so we create ourselves around that idea. We create ourselves and we define ourselves by by that very philosophy. 
And therefore, the highest good is to do whatever it takes to achieve that happiness and to achieve that meaning in however ways you identify. Identity has become so fluid and so malleable that you can be whatever you want, which means now to reject all norms, to reject biological reality, to reject even science, and to reject truth, that, one, that which is clearly perceived is to be rejected. Brothers and sisters, what we are seeing around us in our society is clearly a, a culture that is without restraint. And it's a culture that is, frankly, has too much excess. We are living in a moral revolution where everything is being turned upside down. And the cost of this turning upside down is going to be costly. Who am I? I am what I feel. And if you've ever answered that question and then realized how you feel, that is a very dangerous place. We can often define ourselves as well through our careers and through our jobs. It wasn't long ago that generation after generation grew up in the same area, in the same place, and they just did the, they did the jobs of their parents. Same factories, same farms, but now we could reinvent ourselves and we can invent our own selves and we could almost on a daily basis switch our, our careers and take different jobs all around our country. And many of us have learned to define ourselves by our jobs, by our successes, by our talents, and by our interests. There's subcultures that, that attach themselves to these particular particular things and particular hobbies and particular interests, and we identify in them. Look at social media, right? A, a, a so, well, don't look at social media. Stay away from it. But social media, for example, creates subsets and cultures where people can identify themselves in different ways. And yet, in, in all of these things, and we haven't even scaled the, the surface of this, in all of these things, here's man attempting to define themselves and, and fundamentally asking this very important question, who am I? And then to find joy and life and fulfillment in what they define themselves to be. Everyone wants to be known. And everyone wants to know who they are. Identity today is seen as something that you achieve rather than you receive. And Moses saw his achievements. And he saw how incompletely or, or completely incapable he was to complete the task when he looked at himself. And isn't that the same for us? We enjoy the creating of our own identity. The finding yourselves and a society just applause is that. But that's when we really find out that we cannot deliver our own, on our own promises. The pressure to achieve and to sustain those, those identities become impossible. Are we, in, are we in wonder at all that why anxiety and fear and depression are at all-time highs? 
And yet at the same time, we claim to be the most free people to express themselves of all time. So the question that Moses asks God, he says, who am I? In some ways, in many ways, are the same questions that we ask ourselves. But here is the really good news about this passage. The, the, and the good news is not that Moses is necessarily asking this question, but look who Moses is asking this question to. He is asking this question to God. He doesn't say, God, I can't do this because I know who I am. I figured it out. I found some self-help and some guru and some sociologist or some doctor or some, some moron on the internet has told me these particular things, but he asks the Lord Almighty. So if we are learning something here, when we ask that question, who do we ask this question to? The Lord. In verse 12, mercifully, we hear God answer Moses' Moses's question. And again, God could have answered this question in, in different ways. He could have answered it in maybe a way that that we would expect him to answer, saying, Moses, you can do it. You were, you were raised in Pharaoh's court, man. And, and yeah, you've, you've been a shepherd, but that's not a bad thing. That's not a negative in your life. That's a positive. Man, you got to turn these things around. Lemons and lemonade, man. You got this. And look at all that you learned in the wilderness. Man, your old age is good for you. Now you have wisdom. In the eyes of man, that's the answer. That's, that's, that's the answer. And Moses clearly knows he's, he's supposed to be the deliverer. We see that in the first two chapters. There's no one better for the job. There's no one more qualified for the job that, than, than Moses. But that's not what God does. That's not what God tells Moses. He doesn't, he doesn't remind him of his resume. But he answers him in the way that he needs to hear so that he understands himself. God answers in the way that he needs to understand, so that he understands himself when asking that question, who am I? And God says, I will be with you. I will be with you. So here it is, right? Is, is, is this really the answer to his question? Is this the right answer? Yes, because, because Moses needs to hear not only of the the presence of God, but he needs to understand that Moses, even though these qualities are going to help you in the end and as you deliver my people, that's not what you trust in. You trust in me. Don't trust in your gifts. Don't trust in your talents. Trust in me. And he gives a Moses exactly what he needs to hear. I will be with you. Moses, you saw how the comp your competence and where it got you. God doesn't build up Moses' self-esteem. But he shows them, this is how I define you, my presence. This is how I answer that question, my presence. And that is what makes the difference. Because if God is with him, then whatever doubts he might have had in his own abilities are now irrelevant. 
compared to God's, now, God's promise to Moses. God also gives him a sign, a sign of his presence that when they leave Egypt, he says, you shall serve God on this mountain. Meaning there's a, there's a comfort, the confirmation of the sign will, will be realized not, in, or not until everything in Egypt is over. When you've already come back out of the, when you come out of uh, Egypt and you come here, then you'll see the sign. And again, in our eyes, how is a future sign helpful? I mean, to Moses, he wants to see your sign right now. Hey, give us a sign right now. So we, we want a, a sign right now. But the, the validity of this particular sign God gives him depends not on Moses, but it depends on God's ability to deliver him and to deliver his people and to deliver good on his promise. So our identity, our capabilities, our talents, they're all good. They're to be used to the glory of God, but that's not what's required. It's the presence of God that is with us. So have faith. So have faith. And so here in Exodus 3 and Exodus 4, Moses, we're going to hear Moses ask another question. We already read it. And he's going to ask a couple more questions. And we're going to hear Moses' re reluctance once again. But in the end, as we look at the story as a, as a whole, we see that Moses had assurance. And Moses does move forward in faith. Because in Hebrews eleven twenty seven, by faith Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured seeing him who is invisible. Brothers and sisters, who we are is not what we do. Who we are is not in what we have done or what we can do or even what we can conjure up in our own minds. But as Christians, who we are is firmly rooted in the presence of God. It is firmly rooted with, within our union with Christ. Because only in Christ do we truly find the answer to that question of who am I. Because it's in his righteousness that we stand. And in Christ, he has certainly, he has given us his presence, hasn't he? For he has given us his Holy Spirit, who indwells within us. And he has given us his, his word so that we would see him and know him. So when we wonder what is our purpose or what, are we, what is our calling, how are we supposed to live these things out, or being a faithful disciple in a growing secular and hostile world, how are we to be faithful and righteous and obedient, sharing the gospel and loving our enemies? Who am I? We do so defined by God and by his presence that is among his people. And just to be very practical for just for a second, each day of the week, we get up and we have to do life, don't we? We have to get up, we go every day, we face trials, we face duties, we face the daily tasks of life. We have to go to work, we have to pay the bills, we have to make meals, three meals a day. 
We have to run there and we have to run here. We, be, we have to be a friend. We have to answer the phone. We have to send text messages, send emails, care for our children, worry about our children. We have to interact with people, and we have to clean all the time. And after just a few days, it is very easy, it is very easy for us, for us to forget about the presence of God. It's very easy for us to become weary and tired. We are human, after all. This is, this is who we are. We, this is what humanity does. This is what we do. We, we understand that we're weak. We understand that we are inadequate. But God and his mercy has built into each week for you to be reminded of his presence. The very thing that we need to make it each week, we gather. We gather together as the church. We gather with his people. We gather to, to pray together. We gather together to read God's word and to sing together. And each of us, as we gather, are little reminders of God's presence with us. His presence that is with us today and for the rest of the week. God in his mercy, even this morning, is reminding, reminding us that he is with us. Now, what's way more important than, than Moses asking that question and Moses' struggle with his own identity and his own inadequacies and failures, it's the firm declaration in our text and the revelation of the name of God. Because God has his presence with Moses and that he was going to be with him and he's going to give him a sign. But the question is, is who? Who is going to, to, to be with me? So here comes with Mo Moses with the second question in verse 13. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? We get to the question, what is his name? Look how Moses frames this statement. He says, if I come to this people. What's this if stuff? Right? I mean, what, what is this if stuff? I mean, as if Moses is thinking before God, he's just going to defy him. Or God is just going to let him off the hook or, because Moses can talk him out of it or something. As if obedience is contingent on how God answers. Uh, obedience to God's word, brothers and sisters, is not a negotiation. Something to be learned there. But Moses' question, again, may show his doubt, his, but it's also a very fair question. It's a very fair question. Who am I to say? Who am I to tell Pharaoh? What name should I give to Pharaoh? What name should I tell the, the leaders of Israel? They're going to want to know who is leading them. Knowing a person's name means that you know something about them. So if you happen to be reading the, the local newspaper, or you read it on the internet, whatever it may be, if it comes to your house and you're reading the local newspaper and you're reading an article or you see a headline and there's a name that you recognize, that perks your interest, doesn't it? 
higher than it would be anything else, even if you're interested in the article, because now you know someone that's there. You know that name. You, you recognize that name, and that name has, has meaning. Growing up, we had two phones in our house, and only one of them was cordless. Yes, phones had cords. And when we answered the phone as children, we had to, we had to learn phone etiquette. In learning phone etiquette, we would say hello, they would say hello, and then we would ask, may I ask who's calling? If you don't recognize the name or recognize the voice, that's what you'd say, may I ask who's calling? And what we learned is if the person didn't get a, the name right or doesn't know the, uh, you know, someone who lives there, of course you say, there's, you got the wrong number. Now my mom's name is, is Lindy. And oftentimes, we would get phone calls, and we would say, may I ask who's speaking, or may I ask who's calling, or who you're calling for? And they say, may I speak to Linda? And when they said Linda, we said, oh, you got the wrong number. <laughs> that was an instant sign that that was a telemarketer. Telemarketers used to have a little bit of a, uh, they had big courage back then, because it was a real human, not, a, not the robo call. And God answers this question. And why do we say that? Because names have meaning. And God gives this, gives the answer to this question. And the way that God answers this question is not only important, but it is significant. It is extremely significant because he answers it in a way, again, not in a way that anyone would expect. And so when you look at verse 14, we see God says to Moses, he says, his, he says, I am who I am. You mean your name's not Larry? It's not Joe? He says, I am who I am. Say to the people that I am sent me to you. Say to the people of Israel, the Lord has sent me to you. God answers the question to Moses and gives him his name. I am who I am. Or I am what I am. This isn't traditionally a name that we would hear. But it is, in fact, a revelation that is quite mysterious. One commentator said that this, this name that God reveals of himself, that it, it conceals more than it reveals. God's name, I am. It's not a title. It's his, it's his name. But the, the words that he uses, I am, is, is actually a verb. And it means to, to be. And in verse 15, he tells the Israelites that, the, the Lord has sent him, right? That the, to tell them that the Lord has sent Moses to him. And what we see take place, that at least the editors do for us in our Bibles, is that it changes the I am to now Lord. In most of your Bibles, it's, it's Lord. It's in capitals. Or it's, you know, a capital L in, in small caps. I know in some of you other brothers who have the LSB, 
it's translated as Yahweh. But in both times, what it means is, I am. When you see Lord in the capital letters, it means, I am. And throughout the Old Testament, we see that God's name being used over 5,000 times. This is the name of God. I am. It's often called the, the tetragrammaton, which, which literally means four letters. The four letters of his name are consonants, the Y, the H, the W, and the, and the H, which we get Yahweh. Now, there's no vowels in the name. There's vowels in the way that we pronounce it, but in, in the scripture, there's no, there's no vowels. Because sometime around the Babylonian exile, the Jewish people, they would dare not to say God's name that in, in fear of saying it incorrectly and thus receiving the wrath of God, they wouldn't pronounce God's name. They would, they would say something else. And so those particular vowels were forgotten in the YHWH where, where it's just a, uh, uh, or like a, uh, what do they call it? A shortened version. But this is the name of God. I am. And God gives it to Moses, and he, he, he deliberately says, this is my name, so that it would just blow away all of our definitions of God. We would say about ourselves that I am fill in the blank. I am a father. I am a mother. I am a teacher. I am happy. I am tall. I am Short, but, but what the Lord says here is he's, he's circling himself back to himself because there is nothing that can define him besides him. There's nothing that he can be defined by but by himself. He is not defined by anything outside of him. So I am. I will be what I will be. And that forces us to admit that there are things about God that, he, that we cannot comprehend, that we cannot understand, that he is so majestic and mysterious that we don't even know the correct pronunciation of his name. I am what I am. It is concealing so much about God. And what it's to do, it's to remind us of what Paul does in Romans 11 in his doxology when he's recounting of the goodness and the glory and the grace of God to bring about salvation. That such a holy God would save his people. He, he resounds in this doxology. Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And so deep are his riches. So deep is his wisdom and knowledge and so unsearchable and so inscrutable are his ways and his purposes. Who can comprehend the great I am? Who can question him? Who could give him something as if God then now owes them? 
Who can give counsel to him? He needs nothing. He is lacking nothing. And in this name, I am that I am. God is saying to us, you're not going to know me completely. I'm not you. But also in his name, he is revealing to us. He is showing us also so much about himself. He is showing us that he is eternal. And he has always been. He is unchanging or immutable. He does not change in his divine being. His name is in the present tense, I am. Not I was. Not I will. He is eternally present and he is the one who always is. And so when he tells Moses in verse 15 to tell the Israelites this, that I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, he has sent me to you. I am, meaning I am the God that you already know. I am already the deliverer. I have one who has made you the pe- your people. But he says this, he says, this is my name forever. I am eternal And thus I am to be remembered this way for all generations, throughout all generations. Because God does not change. He does not change, nor will he change. His character, his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his love, his mercy, his grace never changes. His nature is always the same and it will always remain. This name, I am, is also revealing to us God's self-existence. God was not created. He was not brought into being by anyone else, and nor will he be defined or named by anyone else. Compare that, brothers and sisters, what we were talking about earlier, what humanity is doing. Humanity is naming themselves God, and they're changing themselves. This has been the struggle since the very beginning, the very spiritual war since Genesis chapter 3, that man wants to be their own God and to cast off everything of the great I am. Their desire to be God. I did not name myself. My parents gave me my name. For a long time, I didn't like my name. It sounded real nerdy. I wanted to be called like Brad. Brad was a cool name. But my name, I was named after someone else in my family, and I'm truly thankful for it. But God was not named by man. This is not Ra. This is not Baal that man makes up and carves little creatures and worships them. God is completely and utterly independent, and he does not need anything in his creation. And this also shows us another thing that we see God's absolute prerogative of self-revelation. That he defines himself, he reveals himself, and he has done so 
in revealing himself. Listen, he has revealed himself and shown us his name. And uniquely put together with his name is this story of redemption. It's not just about power and might. It's about redemption. And what's going to happen is, is throughout Exodus, God's people are going to see and they're going to learn a lot about the Lord. And, and, and not to mention how God is going to continue to reveal his name to himself that's going to far surpass anything else that has come before. We see the connection again, right, of God's love. His self-revelation in his love and redemption of his people. And oh, does that show us once again as something so wonderful and so glorious about our God. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But to the Old Testament saints, this name, I am Yahweh, the Lord, was, was as precious to them as, as Jesus Christ is, is to us. And, and when it was attached to such phrases as the Lord their God or the Lord of Lords, it, is what, it was a constant reminder to them of God's efforts to them, God's efforts on their behalf of, of his glory for them to save them. And so when we understand and when we say that Jesus Christ is, is, is Lord, we're not just saying that he is Adonai, Lord, Master, but that he is Lord Yahweh, the I Am. That he is the Christ. And when we say that, what should conjure up in our minds is not just some abstract king who's reigning eternally, but this king who has redeemed us, that has saved us, that he has revealed himself to save us, to call us out of slavery and into life. This is the name of the Lord. I am Yahweh, the Lord. It's a constant reminder of God's efforts to save us. And it's a constant reminder to us of what Christ has done. Moses asked for a name, and God gave him a name. I am. But praise God, brothers and sisters, we have come to know another name. A name that is above all names. The only name by which we must be saved, and that is Jesus Christ. In John chapter 10, Jesus says that I am that I and the Father are one. That he is the Christ, the Son of God, the only God. And in John's gospel, we see how Jesus clearly intentionally connects us back to Exodus 3. In John 6, 48, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have light, the light of life. In John 10, 7, Jesus says, I am the, the door of the sheep. In John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. 
And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. In John 15, 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Jesus is clearly declaring that he is God. But back in John 8, 58, he says very clearly, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus was claiming to be the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. He was claiming to be Yahweh. Claiming to be the God of Moses, the, the great am, the eternal, the immutable, the self-existing God incarnate. And the religious leaders what Jesus was saying. They considered it blasphemy. They tried to stone him that day. But what Jesus said was true, that he himself is the one who is and who was and who is to come. A very interesting story also John recounts for us in John 18 was that when Jesus was about to be arrested, he was in the garden. And those that came to arrest Jesus, they, they came to arrest Jesus and Jesus goes to them and he says, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am he. And when Jesus said, I am he, they this crowd that came to arrest Jesus, they drew back and they fell to the ground. And why? Because Jesus is the great I am. Amen. The presence and the power of the great I am. The only way for us to understand ourselves is if we understand the Lord our God that he is not defined or created in my image, but rather he has revealed himself. And he is still mysterious and awesome and so wonderful that we cannot comprehend him. Still sent his son, who is the exact imprint of his nature that we may know him and know that we can know the I am who I am, that we can know Yahweh, that we can know the, the Lord God Almighty who has shown us his glorious deeds in his son, Jesus Christ, and that he has come in the flesh to be our shepherd. The I am has come to be our shepherd. He has come to be the vine that he grafts us into, and the Father is the vine dresser. The I am is our bread of life. It is the very thing that we, we feast on and delight in that gives us life. He is the light of the world. I am the door to forgiveness. The door of forgiveness and joy with him eternally. That he is the, the resurrection and the life. How powerful was that statement when he said it? 
I am the resurrection and the life, not only of his own resurrection, but soon our own resurrection. So that now sinners, so that now sinners and slaves could be saved could be now redeemed. And so now our identities are not in what we can conjure up in our sinful natures, but that our identities are, I am his and he is mine. Oh, brothers and sisters, what we enjoy is truly so wonderful and truly so glorious because that is our identity. Not just now, but for all eternity. And in closing, I want to read Psalm 146. And I want you to listen, O Christian, and, and rejoice. He says, praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh, O my soul. I will praise Yahweh as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes and in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Where his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in Yahweh his God who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Yahweh sets the prisoners free. Yahweh opens up, opens the eyes of the blind. Yahweh lifts those who are bowed down. Yahweh loves the righteous. Yahweh watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked, he will bring ruin. Yahweh will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise Yahweh. And all God's people say...